You're listening to Keeping It Real with Janine, your guide to living an authentic, healthy life podcast. I'm Janine Strong, and every two weeks I have a fresh conversation with inspiring, interesting, and knowledgeable people. My conversation today is with Dr. Kevin Wilson. Dr. Wilson has been in private practice as a naturopathic physician for over 35 years. His emphasis is in orthopedics, gastrointestinal conditions, hormonal issues, and pain management, which is what we are here to talk about today. He has used regenerative injection therapies, including prolotherapy, platelet-rich plasma, and prolozone in his daily work for more than 25 years. Professional, political endeavors have been a big part of his life, too, working for the naturopathic profession in Oregon in many positions. Because of these activities, he has been awarded both the Centennial and Living Legend Awards from the Oregon Association of Naturopathic Physicians and the National College of Natural Medicine. As a frequent speaker, Dr. Wilson is active in the promotion of greater pain management awareness and education. He was honored to have been chosen as one of the reviewers of the Institute of Medicine's Relieving Pain in America. He is also proud to be a father, a husband, a kayaker, and paddleboard enthusiast, and from my perspective, most important of all, a gardener. Greetings, Kevin. Hi, Janine. (laughs) Uh, I'm so grateful that you're able to carve out a bit of time to come on my podcast. I know you are very busy, so thank you so much. Oh, happy to do it. (laughs) Thanks. So your practice is located outside of Portland in Hillsboro, and I have to say that your work in pain management has made a huge difference in my life. You've stuck a lot of needles in my back. (laughs) And after my thyroid crash, you also helped me with my recovery. I've always admired the breadth and depth of your knowledge, and I'm thrilled to be sharing a bit of that with our listeners. So thank you very much. You're welcome. So our topic today is pain management, and um, we talked a a little bit about it on other podcasts uh, that I did around addiction, and I know pain is is just such a huge, huge issue these days, and I'd love for you to share with our listeners uh, the work you do and your, your, your philosophy around pain management, and maybe you can give them some little nuggets of... uh, of, of pearls of wisdom that they can take with them to help with their pain management. Well, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm not sure uh, any, that I have any great wisdom. <laughs> well, you know, pain is um, our friend, actually. We need pain to protect us and educate us. It's only when pain becomes um, persistent and chronic that it becomes disabling and depressing and um, dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So the challenge is trying to um, treat acute pain appropriately so that it doesn't become chronic. And in, in my mind, to treat the whole person when they have persistent pain, because as science is now proving, pain is really in our brain. Mm-hmm. It's a perception of of this distressing feeling. And so um, that may be a good thing or, or, or not. It may teach us to avoid injury. It may teach us to avoid dangerous situations. But with a persistent pain, people become afraid of the pain mm-hmm. in a, 
really. And so they become deconditioned and that leads to avoidance of activity and avoidance of pain because they're fearing tissue damage. And most of the time with chronic pain, movement isn't damaging, it's simply um, distressing. Mm -hmm. so, so you have to intervene somewhere along the line. And, and what I have found in my practice is that the chronic pain patient just needs some hope of recovery. You know, hope that there's either a, a, a medication or a supplement or a procedure that will alleviate their pain, or they can have reassurance that the pain meds are on or not doing damage and that they're doing okay. Um, I, I like to think that with prolotherapy and physical medicine, whether it's chiropractic manipulation or other kinds of manipulation, some kind of injection therapy or, or whatever, that um, you can eliminate some little injury that has contributed to the sort of central sensitization that people have. The longer they're in pain, the more their central nervous system actually changes and becomes inflamed. And mm. so um, the, the, the goal is to treat them centrally, but I also believe you have to treat some peripheral lesions. And together you can restore function and uh, encourage them and get them moving again. Mm -hmm. I do think like, um, oh, let's say a unstable SI joint or an unstable knee or ankle due to mostly old injuries and sports activities, they they have this dysfunctional signal coming up to their central nervous system and it contributes to this ongoing signal. Um, we have to take into account the individual as well because they have their own personal history. It could be past trauma, it could be chronic infection, it could be adverse childhood events. Anything that so-called primes the central nervous nervous system so that subsequent injuries or ongoing pain really becomes amplified in their in their experience and in their central nervous system. So the goal is to try to quiet all that down and reassure people um, that there is hope. Um, the opiate story is a really fascinating but tragic one as well. As you know, I'm sure you've already talked about addiction before. Mm -hmm. Opiate Opiates have been used by humans for over 10,000 years. Um, they weren't concentrated. They weren't synthesized. They were just crude extracts of poppies. And, you know, they had some great value. Mostly they were used short terms. I'm sure that there were people who were addicted even back then. We certainly know about opium and opium dens having people who were pretty well dependent. Um, but statistically it's my understanding that most people who use opiates long term do so responsibly and steadily and effectively and are not having it disrupt their lives long-term exposure to opiates certainly causes dependency in every single person but that does not actually equate to aberrant behavior which you might call addiction mm -hmm. addiction and dependency are pretty much the same thing, although there's a different cast or a different uh, set of behaviors associated with each. I am a prescriber. I'm not a heavy prescriber, and I have trepidation about every opiate prescription I write. I don't have a lot of people on chronic, large-dose, long-term use, but um, 
I, I do think some people can do that well, and it may be the best treatment for them. Although the longer we know about opiates and the more we know, we know that they change our central nervous system towards the central pain, central sensitization. And so often people who are on chronic uh, opiate use are actually not only treating their dependence, but they're creating a new kind of pain. So they're not treating their old pain, they're treating this new central generalized pain. Mm. And in, in conjunction with that, uh, unfortunately, many people are using opiates for their anxiety. It's not the pain, it's the fear of the pain, and it's just a general anxiety syndrome in, in many cases. So I, I take it uh, as a tremendous responsibility to lessen the opiate dose if possible, to, to get them off of it if, if possible, and to lessen the harm associated with opiate use. Mm -hmm. um, so if someone is, if they're... Their condition really is a generalized anxiety syndrome. What what do you do for them? How do you help them? Well, that's a really challenging question. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> you know, uh, I think anxiety is the biggest epidemic going right now, uh, mm. second to pain. So is that just, you know, anxiety about the environment, politics? Is it their life? Is, were they primed for this? Uh, that's a challenging one, but the more I know, the more I believe in the gut-brain connection. And mm -hmm. again, it's sort of like priming. If your gut is disturbed, then um, it's having an influence on your brain and your central nervous system, particularly the amygdala and others that create that anxiety-fearful state. I had a case this year of a young woman with uh, really resistant anxiety, didn't respond to benzodiazepines or any other medication, and lo and behold, she had a pseudomonas infection of her gut, and once we resolved that pseudomonas infection, her anxiety began to fade away. Wow. So that that is really a challenge of trying to figure out where it's coming from, what's the cause. Often it's medication-induced, so um, I am not a big prescriber of psychopharmacology, but I do at times think there's a place for short-term benzos or antidepressants or, you know, some of the others. But I would always prefer as a naturopathic physician to uh, emphasize the botanical medicines, the nutritional supplements, dietary and lifestyle changes. So prescription drugs are my last and least happy choice unless they're the most and only appropriate tool for the job. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I found too that when I cleaned up my nine bacterial overgrowths in my gut, that my depression really lifted. Absolutely, it's, you know, depression, anxiety, maybe OCD, others. I think we're beginning to learn that they're all kind of a manifestation of the brain inflamed. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that the gut either produces things that interfere with GABAergic neurons, which are kind of the quieting side of our nervous system. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a bit of studies about different dysbioses interfering with the GABAergic neurons so that things are actually, or revving up the gluta, glutaminergic system that's sort of the stimulating, exciting, uh, 
engaging part of our nervous system. So we're trying to, we're always trying to find balance so that we're not perpetually overexcited or perpetually depressed. You know, we need to respond to the environment at that time and then go back to a, a calm, steady state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of part of the endocannabinoid system too. The, you know, all the enthusiasm about cannabis is, is all exciting because it's been a suppressed area of research for years mm-hmm. because of the crazy laws. But now that there's an opening of that door, I think the the enthusiasm is a little over the top. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and the post, post-prohibition. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, there's real medicine there. And part of that is, is that many of the things that people use to self-medicate all work through this gabinergic system to quiet us down and to create a, a less pain, less inflammation, and and maybe less anxiety. But that homeostatic endocannabinoid system is trying to create balance at all times, balance in energy, balance in temperature, balance in appetite, balance in inflammation. And so it's a really intimate and um, exciting system. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad that people are using it more, but I think I would, I'd rather people learn how to feed and take care of their own cannabinoid system rather than necessarily having to use exogenous cannabinoids. So what would you suggest then uh, to feed and care for your own cannabinoid system, endocannabinoid system? Well, um, yeah, again, it's a complex subject and I don't claim to be an expert about it, but um, there are some really great researches in it. And, And the thing to remember about the endocannabinoid system is it's a fat-based system. Hmm. It's inclusive of the eicosanoid pathway, which is why we take fish oils and why dietary oils are so critical, uh, because they create prostaglandins and other mediators of inflammation that both control inflammation and blood flow and vessel permeability and others. And so the cannabinoids fit right into that system. Therefore, dietary fats must be hugely important in that story mm-hmm. and the metabolites of that. But lo and behold, there's a great connection between the endocannabinoid system and the musculoskeletal system um, through the actions and the metabolism of fibroblasts. Mm-hmm. And as a gardener, um, mm-hmm. both at home and in my practice, I consider myself a gardener. I, I call myself a collagen farmer. <laughs> so most of the injections I'm doing are stimulating fibroblast activity and tissue repair. But it looks like physical activity, stretching, and other things affects the fibroblasts and consequently affects our endocannabinoid system. Amongst other things, there are many other ways to do it. Um, I do think mindfulness and meditation and other things are hugely important mm-hmm. for our endocannabinoid system and a happy balance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So interesting. I didn't realize there was a connection with fats there in the endocannabinoid system. So in in doing the injections, um, cause I know they're so, they're so powerful and a lot of people have never heard of prolotherapy or prolozone. I have a friend who's getting prolozone in her knees right now. She has, 
a lot of autoimmune diagnoses and has trouble walking, so she's getting the prolozone. Can you explain a little bit about how it works and you know how it can benefit people who are having chronic pain? Sure, sure. Prolotherapy is the iatrogenic generation of local inflammation to restart and uh, finish the healing cascade of events. So you're you're deliberately creating an inflammation. Correct. Okay. In a local application, so mm-hmm. it's a very very specific at particularly at the attachment sites of tendons, ligaments, capsules, uh, and fascia. Mm-hmm. So what what happens with normal injuries is that there's a local inflammation that proceeds to migration of different types of white blood cells into the t- injured area. But over time, the growth of new blood vessels and eventually fibroblast recruitment to lay down new collagen and repair the tissue and things hopefully go back to the way they were before the injury. Unfortunately, for some of us, whether it's due to their personal biochemistry or, or the central sensitization or, or whatever, and their interference with that process of this cascade of events that leads to real true wound healing, they stop it at the very initial inflammatory phases with the application of too much ice for too long or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or inactivity. Um, The old rice formula, rest, uh, ice, compression, and elevation, I think was misguided in that uh, it, it, it interfered with that normal healing process. Hmm. So, so you're pro- saying movement is more important. Movement is essential to real wound healing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Broken your leg, you got to give it a break. I'm not saying to <laughs> to you know perpetuate the injury or to continue injuring yourself. Rest has value, but um, it can be too much rest, and then we have this deconditioning and not stimulating the healing process. So, how do you know then what wh- where that balance is like? Um, say you, you tore a muscle, um, in your shoulder or something like that. How do you know, you know, when your rest time is over and when you should start moving it around? Yeah, that, that is a challenging question. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not an exercise physiologist, but I feel like we have three or four days of acute inflammation from an injury and then it begins to proceed to wound healing. So I think, you know, being reasonable and responsible, giving your body a break to recover is important. Let that bleeding stop into a wounded area. Let things settle down. And then just gentle movement as you explore it. It's not, it's not to have you go back to your old uh, workout routine or your old job activities that either created this in the first place or interfered with it. So it's just the gentle exploration of movement is, is what I kind of suggest to people. What, what prolotherapy is predicated on is the idea that people have pain, and in a conventional model, pain is equal to inflammation. And in a way, that's true, but it's also not true. So typically, you hear, as your example, someone hurts their shoulder, they go and they get a cortisone shot. Mm-hmm. Well. Cortisone is for inflammation, it's for swelling, it's for 
this really acute, dramatic situation. But most of us have pain from chronic injuries, chronic instabilities, old things that happened that never healed. They hurt, but they're not dramatically inflamed. There is a little bit of local um, inflammatory process at, the, at those entheses or the attachment of dense connective tissue to the bone and the periosteum. So my goal is to find the pain generator, but primarily by palpation. I don't think they're particularly well imaged by MRIs or ultrasound or CAT scans, but occasionally they are. More often than not, a good physical exam, good palpatory skills will tell you what is causing the person pain. And then I do this injection to the area. Um, I am just an advocate of this. There have been heroes who preceded me and who are really, uh, as the cliche goes, I stand on the shoulders of giants who've done (laughs) great work with this, starting with Hackett and Hemwall back in 1956 and Dean Reeves at the University of of Kansas and and many others. Oh, I didn't realize it went back that far. uh, And it goes back further. They Mm. were the first to write the book on it, but there had been procedures all the way back to ancient times when they used uh, cautery to to repair ligaments and and, uh, primarily war injuries, but uh, others as well. Mm -hmm. So what we use is a concentrated dextrose solution primarily, 10 to 25% applied either at the emphasis or intraarticularly, and this creates a little local inflammatory response. If you have an unstable joint, every step you take is this dysfunctional signal that contributes to that noise in the central nervous system that I think can be perceived as pain all over, even though there's an area that can be improved. Now, that's not saying it's going to fix everybody's chronic generalized pain, but if you can fix one little lesion, people get hope. They are often able to move more effectively, and it does contribute to their recovery from chronic generalized pain. Oh, okay. It sounds like you're kind of looking for for the source or the 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 core pain that is causing a more generalized uh, or radiating reaction. Right. I describe it as looking for the pain generator. Got it. Mm-hmm. And the injections not only are therapeutic, but they are diagnostic. So if you keep good chart notes and you're a good diagnostician, then you should learn something every time you inject somebody or examine them or treat them. And and if you haven't the success you want, then you have to keep looking. And sometimes, as you know, it's a, it's a conundrum. Is this musculoskeletal? Is it neurological? Is it endocrinological? And from a naturopathic perspective, it's all of the above many times. Mm-hmm. I've talked about, um, I'm on the Oregon Pain Management Commission, which is an exciting organiza- organization that only Oregon has. Mm. And it's a, it's a patient advocacy commission that's multidisciplinary. There's MDs and DOs and dentists and myself and a chiropractor and pain psychologists. And it's, it's really exciting. And you can go to the Oregon Pain Management website, and there's actually a training for patients and practitioners as well into understanding the new concepts of pain. Mm, I'll put a link for that on the website. Yeah, please do. Well, 
one of the things that I, I try to bring to that discussion is the naturopathic idea that diet and nutrition are essential to the management of pain. If you're eating a lot of sugar, you're inflamed. If you're dehydrated, you're inflamed. If you're not eating enough fruits and vegetables to alkalinize your tissues, you're in a state, state of sort of chronic acidity, that is an inflammatory, painful state. So it, it makes a balanced diet and adequate hydration as important as any pharmacological agent you can use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, if, and if doctors are in a hurry and they're just able to write a prescription, they're not having that discussion. And, and, it, and it's fraught with disappointment because you're trying to get on top of this discomfort, distressing pain, and really the body's generating it themselves. And you're not, you're not changing that by a pain medication. Mm -hmm. Although non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have a place, they have a lot of untoward adverse aspects. Right. You know, particularly wounded bowels, gut bleeding, and sadly, I think they interfere with wound healing. They actually interfere with fibroblast activity. Mm -hmm. So it's not really an answer. I mean, it, it may be a short-term help, but it, I mean, it sounds like it really needs to be a multidisciplinary approach. Well, that's what the uh, IOM said, the Institute of Medicine with their Leaving Pain in America, was it had to be incorporate, it had to incorporate the biopsychosocial model of pain. And I think they've done better at getting away from the pharmaceutical aspects, although, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a prescriber and there's a place for those. But if you're not taking care of the biology part of it, then you're missing that. And that's the diet and nutrition component, the physical activity component. Um, it's exciting that pain psychology is, is a burgeoning field and you know cognitive behavioral therapy and others, which I've come to respect and appreciate, although I don't do it and don't really understand it as well as I maybe should, I feel like the biological part of this tsunami of pain, as it's been described, uh, is being missed by conventional medicine and the, the greater powers that be, partly because it's not covered by insurance, and it's not something you can just write a prescription for mm -hmm. or do a procedure for. Is, is prolotherapy generally covered by insurance? Um, you know, it's becoming more accepted. There's doctors up at OHSU doing it and at Kaiser. So it's grown in the quarter century I've been doing it, which is really exciting. But there isn't actually a code for prolotherapy. Mm. So it's a little controversial. There, there's unfortunately those insurance companies that claim it's still experimental. It does not fit the definition of experimental in any way, shape, or form. There are studies about it. It's taught in schools. It's not experimental. So that's just, uh, I think, a cynical kind of move not to pay. However, joint injections, ligament injections have always been covered. You mm -hmm. know, so it depends on, I think it depends on how you phrase it, not to be disingenuous or dishonest, but I am doing ligament injections, and I think there are codes for that, and, and sometimes insurance companies cover it, and sometimes they don't. Mm -hmm. So I know that not all uh, 
practitioners doing prolo are equal because <laughs> I have had some prolo from someone else besides you and it didn't seem to work that well. So what what would somebody look for if they're interested in uh, doing something different for their pain, trying prolo, trying changing their diet and, and their stress level and doing their their own practice, but if they want to try Prolo, what what should they be looking for for a good practitioner? How would they know? Because it's not cheap, so you know if 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 it's not being covered, um, so you want it to work, and you want to go to somebody who's good. Certainly, certainly, um, it's not cheap for the individual, but it is cheap in the big picture compared to a joint replacement or surgical procedure. So, right, I, I do think it is very cost effective. So uh, just to reiterate here, or go back a, a point here. So are you saying that Prolo is something that would be wise to do before getting a joint replaced? Absolutely. It, it depends on the extent of degeneration of the joint or the, the extent of the injury. Uh, Prolo doesn't fix everything. Um, but, uh, and I've had my disappointments and failures like any other practitioner. So I, this is not an arrogant position I take. But if I have something that hurts and it's not working appropriately, I'm always going to defer to Prolo first. And again, the nutritional component is critical because I want to be successful. I want my patients to recover. And Prolo will not work as well for any individual if they're not able to grow collagen, if they're not able to initiate that wound repair, wound repair cascade of events. So I insist on vitamin C in fairly large doses as a preparatory thing. Mm -hmm. But to your point, um, yes, and, and as I was saying, you know, people come in all the time with a diagnosis or they say, I have an MRI, can you help me? My sh I've got a torn labrum in my shoulder or I have a meniscal tear in my knee. The truth of the matter is that men my age, I'm 65, virtually 100% of us have labral tears in our shoulders. Mm -hmm. But most of us don't have pain. So if you have a painful shoulder, you go get an MRI, they find a labral tear, and they go, well, that there it is. That's the problem. You need surgery, and we'll resolve it. Um, they may or may not resolve it, but the labral tear may or may not be the cause of pain. And often I find with a good exam, it often has little to do with their shoulder pain. So I'm not sure where I was going with that, other than there is hope always of improving people's painful state, their dysfunctional loss of integrity of joints and ligaments with prolotherapy. Mm -hmm. I have patients who need joint replacement, and I'm happy to encourage them in that direction when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Finding a good practitioner is, is always a challenge. I do think there are some good training programs. I, with a group of colleagues, used to do trainings for anyone who attend, mostly naturopathic doctors. Uh, we, we have discontinued that for now, but there's the American Association of Orthopedic Medicine, of which I was a member for years and years. They do good trainings. There's individual doctors like myself who have smaller trainings. Um, so you want to see if someone had a training particularly, what's their credentials, what's their history of it. I'm a diplomate of the American Association of, Association of Pain Management, which 
doesn't mean that much other than I've taken extra effort to be knowledgeable about pain and may or may not mean someone knows about prolotherapy. But you want to see that they've actually had interaction with the larger prolotherapy community, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I have a question that uh, you mentioned collagen a couple of times. Yeah. Is there value in taking collagen orally? You know, I'm asked that question all the time, and the <laughs> answer is I don't know. Um, I do think it's non-harmful. I don't, I, you know, I am a fan of amino acids as mm-hmm. supplements. And if you think about collagen as just a good source of amino acids, you digest it, and then your body has the, the basic building blocks of making its own proteins, then then maybe it's appropriate. There is something kind of specific about collagen contributing to people's own collagen, but I, I don't know enough about that to give you an honest answer. Hmm, okay. I, I was just wondering because I, I know there is type, what is it, type 1, 2, 3, three and, 5, yeah. and 10, I think? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. And do they all do different things? or They do. You know, it depends on whether it's the cartilage in your knee or the ligaments of your knee or the collagen in your skin or the collagen in your blood vessels. They're all quite different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I know I, I was looking at one supplement the other day. It had one and three. And I thought, and, and then I saw another one that has two. <laughs> and I was like, maybe it's good to if you're going to take it to take something that has all of them because, you know, you yeah. don't know what's doing what. Right. That's And I, I haven't read enough research to tell me about collagen as an oral supplement. You know, the thing that I wanted to, to say about that is that the common denominator to good, healthy collagen, whether it's skin or arteries or joints, is vitamin C. Mm. Calling, one of my heroes proved that animals the size of the average human make 10 grams of vitamin C a day and under duress can double or triple that output. Wow. And humans, like all primates, are mutants. We do not make vitamin C at all. So you could attribute a lot of the chronic degenerative diseases of modern life to subclinical scurvy. And I have been astonished over the years how when people get on a modest, although some people might think it's a mega dose of vitamin C, an amazing array of things improve, including depression, pain, and um, gosh, an array of things. So, wow. Is modest I'm, like five grams, something like that? or? Yeah. I, I think I see people, I have people who come in who want prolotherapy, and I never or rarely do it on the first visit. So I say, okay, let's, let's examine you get a plan about what I want to treat, go home, take vitamin C, and I have them start with one gram and work up to four or six grams a day um, and come back in two weeks. And on occasion, people come back and I go, you know, I don't have any more pain. Oh, wow. They don't need Prolo. So I'm, I'm actually proud of that. You know, I mm-hmm. do the Prolo, but I'm thrilled that we actually hit upon really something therapeutic and so um so yes the answer is one to five to six grams 
There are a few individuals for whom larger doses is not appropriate, people who produce a lot of oxalates. Um, it does not create kidney stones as they have feared. Um, it does pass through into your urine, but vitamin C is essential to forming the twist in collagen. Collagen is this triple helical molecule like hemp rope or something. And without that twist, it's sort of flaccid and overly stretchy fibers instead of these twisted, nice, strong, tight collagen structures. Mm-hmm. So is there, uh, is, is one type of vitamin C more valuable than another or is any vitamin C work for that? Uh, I have felt that just plain old, cheap old ascorbic acid is as good as anything. Okay. Um, I, I may be missing fat, you know, there's, there's liposomal vitamin C there. Right, that's what I was wondering about. That's what I've used. I think they're, they're fine. They're just maybe more expensive than necessary for the average person. Mm-hmm. I get great results with just plain ascorbic acid. And I hate to be simplistic, but I like the fact that it's affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's important. And especially if someone uh, is having pain and inflammation, that sounds like a really easy place to start. Totally easy and totally safe. So backing off on the sugars and taking supplemental vitamin C and seeing how that helps. And more vegetables. And more vegetables. Yeah, yeah. They are cure of everything. <laughs> well, it's a lot easier to do in the summer. I like walking through the garden and just picking stuff and eating it. <laughs> in the winter, I take powdered greens because it just—it's just not as easy to, uh, for me anyway, to to eat as much raw vegetables as I like. So I figure yeah. at least powdered greens is helping. I think so. Great. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to end. I really, I I think your advice about the vitamin C is really helpful. And for people who are having chronic pain, you know, and having a hard time moving around, definitely check out prolotherapy. And, uh, you know, maybe you can also avoid having a a joint knee replacement or a hip replacement if it hasn't gone too far. You might be able to avoid all of that. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Oh, it's been great fun. Um, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge. I, you know, every time I've gone in for an appointment with you, I've just so enjoyed our conversations. <laughs> I always learn a lot, and I always, I always feel like it's, uh, uh, you know, our conversations are really valuable. And so, thank you. Thank you, and I, I appreciate that. And uh, it's nice to always talk to someone who's knowledgeable themselves. <laughs> Girl, thank you. I appreciate that. Great. Well, thank you. Take care. And uh, I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed this very much. Thanks, Janine. Take care. Be well. Yep, you too. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much, Dr. Kevin Wilson, for taking time out of your busy life to share your knowledge and expertise with us. I always learn something in conversation with you. The podcast website is realjanine.com, where you can listen and download episodes. Sign up for the podcast bi-weekly blog newsletter to keep up on new episodes, archives, life updates, and always a healthy recipe. And remember, Janine, it's an odd spelling, it's J-A-N-E-A-N. To subscribe to Keeping It Real with Janine, go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. And now I have a Keeping It Real with Janine YouTube channel, and I'm creating video slideshows of all of my conversations. 
So if you'd like to help out, please go to YouTube and subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Do you know someone who would benefit from my conversation with Dr. Wilson? I'll bet you do. Please share the love. Thanks for listening. Take care and be welcome.